the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. John the Baptist was sent before Jesus, the Messiah, to cause people to repent and turn to God. His message shook the people around him. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. We've been learning about how our faith is a reliable one through the Gospel of Luke. He's been giving us facts and details, dates, times, situations that people would be able to plug in to their time period and know, oh yeah, that did happen, and to understand the facts of the gospel. In that journey, as he's been taking us along, showing us that our faith is reliable, we've been moving beyond the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus to now their adult lives and their ministries. In looking at John the Baptist's ministry, he's been calling the people to repentance and then to exemplify it through water baptism. And today we're going to see that he's going to now introduce us to Jesus. You know, there's a motto that became famous in the 1990s. You're probably familiar with it. What would Jesus do? And while that's a great reminder before making a decision, I have always preferred to know what Jesus did do to be my guide rather than what would he do? Because sometimes we face situations where you say, what would Jesus do? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure. Yet we can look and see what Jesus did do and it can provide a guide for us because the word of God doesn't change. And another thing that I think is important to me is not just what did Jesus do, but what God's word says Jesus wants to do in my life, because I never want to be found fighting against that. And so as we see John's continued preaching, may his explanation of what Jesus wants to do in our lives impact us so that we let the Lord have his way. So chapter three, we begin in verse 15. Now it says, as the people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts of John, about John, concerning John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered. The people begin to wonder if John's the Messiah when all these amazing things are going on and his impact that he's having on the culture. The word expectation there, it means to anticipate or expect something to happen. The mood of the language here is hope. What's interesting about our language is that we don't have mood to our language. You derive mood from my facial expressions, whether they're happy or angry or sad or something like that. And the same phrase can mean multiple things. I refuse to have theological conversations over email or text for that reason. I have people come and they want to want to have conversations with me over the text about theology. I refuse to do it because more often than not, if I don't agree with them, they're going to think I'm mad at them because I'll just ask my wife, I can kind of be a little blunt. I don't mean to be that way, but I just say what it is and what I'm thinking. I get read wrong a lot because I'm not saying it with any ill intent at all. I'm just saying, well, you're wrong. As a result, people take it the wrong way. Pastor Will hates me. No, I don't hate you. I just think you're wrong. I like to do that face to face so you can see mood. You can see those things. 
in Greek, though, you can convey mood. So the mood of this language of where it says, and all the people were in expectation, and they were thinking in their hearts about John, whether he's the Christ, there's hope. They are thinking he is the guy. Now, why was there so much hope? Well, as we said earlier, the prophecies stated that this was the time the Messiah would come. This is when he would come, be born. This is when he would live. This is when he would have his ministry. And in addition to that, there was messianic fervor all throughout Israel. Four other men had claimed to be the Messiah. They had led rebellions against Rome. They'd all failed miserably. The people were thinking, well, John, and they hoped he's finally the one. He's got to be the Messiah. He even confronted our religious leaders. Well, John has to set the record straight. And so in verse 16, John answered saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water. So John explains his ministry to them. Unlike these other men who claim to be the Messiah and failed, John does have an anointing from God. He does have a calling from God. And it's to turn people back to the Lord. We've looked at that last week with what baptism's about. Water baptism is a declaration of what's already happened in your heart, that you've turned from your old way of living and now you're living for the Lord. We talked about that last week. And John's saying, that's my calling. That's my ministry is to turn people back to the Lord. But the people here, as they hear that, and they're thinking he's the Messiah, he's saying, that's not my ministry. This is my ministry. The fact that he says, my ministry is to turn people back to the Lord, that showed the people that their hope was misplaced. They didn't need another rebel leader to throw down Rome. They needed to be made right with God. And that required God himself. A man couldn't do that. So look at what he says about the Messiah. Now he explains that the Messiah will be uniquely greater than any other man. He says, I indeed baptize you with water. That's my ministry. But one mightier than I comes, the latchet whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. John explains that there's someone coming and he says, I can't even untie his shoes and take his sandals off when he comes into the house. That was an honor you would do for somebody. He goes, I'm not even worthy to do that. A couple interesting points here. King James says, And there is one or but one mightier than I, but literally in the King James, it means, but the one who's mightier than I. In other words, there's only one person who meets these qualifications and it's the Messiah. No other man can meet these qualifications. Only one person can. And what is the qualification? Well, he's mightier than I. The word mightier there, it refers to someone who has high status based on their personal capacity. For example, when a president's elected, in most cases, they're trying to find the most qualified people available to put someone in their cabinet. Or if you, you become a boss somewhere, you get a promotion and you know, you're assigned to a new division or something, you want to usually put the people who are most qualified into positions there. But every once in a while, what happens? Somebody gets in there because they're, it's a favor that's owed or they're a friend. They've been with through you th- through thick and thin and they may not be the most qualified, but they get placed into high status because you have high status. The Messiah, this is not someone who's placed in high status because someone else in high status put him there. He's someone who intrinsically has that high status. He intrinsically, because of his own personal capacity, belongs in that role. No one else belongs in that role. And so because of that, that might that he has in and of himself, not given to him, but just he possesses in and of himself. This one individual, John says, I'm not even worthy to unloose the latchet on his shoes. Sandals back then, they usually had a, just a, a pad, and then they would take the thongs and they would tie it around their feet and their, their ankles and their calves to keep it on so that they could walk without discomfort. I don't imagine those things were highly comfortable, but they're more comfortable than your bare feet. And he says, I'm not even worthy when he would come into my home to take those things off, to do that honor to him. None of us would make a statement like that about another human being. Like I would never look at you and you wouldn't look at me and say, I try hard, but you know, I'm not in Will's category or I'm not, I'm not in your category or I couldn't even tie your shoes or untie your shoes. None of us would say that about another human being, but we would say that about the Lord. We would say that about God. 
This shows that the Messiah, it requires him to be God. He can't just be a man. And since the Messiah will be God, his ministry will be able to accomplish what John's can't produce, restoring what was lost in the garden. All John's job was, and all he could do, is to turn the hearts of people back to God. But it's the Messiah himself who will actually restore what was lost. He will bring us back into right relationship with God. He will overcome sin. John now explains in the end of verse 16 how Messiah's ministry will be different than his. He says, I baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, the Holy Ghost is just an old English way of saying the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. And what he's saying here is that I can only immerse in water, guys. The Messiah, he will immerse you in God himself. He will immerse you in God himself. See, while water baptism declares what's already taken place in my heart, what's already happened in my heart, the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a different life. Now, that's not something I could do for you. I can point the way. I can say, well, the scripture says this, but I can't change your life. I can't say, by the power vested in me, you will no longer struggle with this sin. I can't do that. But Jesus can. God's Spirit can. And that's what Jesus was coming to do. John came to turn us back to God. He says, that's my ministry. I'm not like those other four yokels. I have a ministry. He goes, but Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to do far more than that. He's going to change your life. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a different kind of life, one that pleases God. But that's not all he's going to baptize us with. He's also going to baptize us with fire. Fire destroys, fire consumes. Not only is he going to give us the ability to live a life that pleases God, but the Messiah is going to come and he's going to destroy the things in our life that don't please God. He's going to remove them, consume them, take them out of our lives. And it goes on to say, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. That's what he wants to do, to baptize us with his Holy Spirit and to cleanse us from the things that don't please God in our lives. How is he going to do that? Well, it says his fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. The word for fan here refers to the winnowing shovel, and it would be used to thresh the grain into the air so that the wind could blow away the chaff, the unusual portion of the stalk. What they would do when you'd harvest the grain is they would have, we call it in the south, the thrashing floor. But it's a threshing floor where you would go up into this building, usually a building, sometimes it would just be an open covering, but they would usually, they have one door open on one side, like a big barn, and one big opening on the other side. They would bring the grain in there, and then with this winnowing fan, they would begin to work it all up, and what would happen is, is the chaff, the part you couldn't use, not the grain, the stalk and the leaves, they would blow up, and then as the wind is blowing through the building, it would just eventually separate that, the wheat from the chaff. The idea is that Jesus, in wanting to clean us out, he's got his winnowing shovel, and he's throwing stuff up in the air, and fanning the whole thing, and trying to move it out. The idea of thoroughly purging, it it's a picture word of a farmer beginning at one end of his threshing floor and moving all the way to the other end, cleaning out everything as he goes. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He wants to completely clean out what doesn't belong, the things that I don't need and the things that separate me from God. Before we continue, you know, I would ask you, are you letting him do that? Or are the doors to your threshing floor locked? Jesus, he, he wants to come in. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wants to come in and we have piles of chaff around there, you know, or we have places that haven't been winnowed yet. And the Lord says, I want to go over there. Are we letting him? Or do we say, no, 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 Lord, that, that's an area we don't touch. We don't, nobody talks about that. We don't go over there. Are you letting him have his way, you know, to go completely through your storage house, the storage house of your life, so he can separate and remove whatever needs to be cleaned out? That's what he wants to do. Of course, the hope is that everyone will let the Lord clean them up. But what happens if some won't? John tells us that the Messiah will separate those people from those who do. 
let him clean him up. Look at the end here. And we use and a couple ways in our language, but in the Greek, you actually have different words to explain it. For example, let's make a true statement here. Will is handsome and kind. They're related. We use it as a conjunction. You take two ideas that are accurate to the highest degree and you relate them together and they both apply the same way. That's not how this is used here. This is used in a sense of contrast. It's connected because the person doing it's the same person, but the ideas are different. So whereas the first one refers to a positive work the Messiah wants to do to clean us out, it says here now something in contrast or distinct to the previous idea, which is he will gather the wheat into his garner, into his storage house, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, it would be easy to get confused and just go, oh good, he's just going to burn away the things I don't need. That's not what's being said here. He's going to gather the wheat, those who are responding to his cleaning process, into his storage area. But the ones that don't respond, who reject it, it says he will burn with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire. The Bible is clear that nothing that is defiled can enter into heaven. Turn to Revelation 21 with me. We're going to look at 22 as well, a few verses in 21 and 22. We're going to start with verses 6 through 8 and 21. And he, that's the one who sat on the throne, said unto me, so this is God himself speaking, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to him, the good news, him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the fearful, here's the bad news. The unbelieving, the abominable, and murderers. And King James says whoremongers. It means the sexually immoral. Those who are engaging in illicit behavior, sexual sin. And sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Look down in Revelation 21, verse 23. John is looking at the city, the new Jerusalem that we're going to dwell in with the Lord forever. Verse 23, it says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Awesome. But, verse 27, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at Revelation 22, verse 14 and 15. Revelation 22, 14, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. The Bible is clear. Hell is real. It says many other passages, it's for these things that the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. These things should not be named once among believers, not once. So if you won't let Jesus clean you, you can't go there. Now, the good news is, is that the beautiful part of repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ is that the moment you do so, God washes away all your sin, past, present, future. That's the good news. It's like the moment you come and you go, okay, Lord, this isn't good. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what you want. That no longer becomes your destination. You have a different destination, both here and there. You're clean in his eyes as it concerns your eternal security. And then here, from that moment, he begins to clean up your behavior, practically. And we spend the entire rest of our lives doing so, right? We're always a work in progress here. He always sees us perfected, but we're always a work in progress still here. And the idea is that on our way to heaven... We're getting closer, right? We're becoming more and more like Jesus being conformed to the image of his son by his spirit. That's what he promises he'll do. Again, I would ask you, are you letting him? Are you letting him have his way? 
Or are you ignoring that corner of chaff that he wants to talk about? We go down further and it says, and many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. The word exhortation there just means to urge or plead with or to appeal to. He's appealing to the people with many other ways to get right with God. So one of the ways that he appealed to people to get right with God is to speak of judgment. And it's interesting, it calls it good news. The word there, preached, the Greek word is euangelio or euangelizo. There's a common English word that it sounds similar to that, right? Evangelism. That's where we get our word evangelism from. It means to announce good news. You say, wait a second, Pastor Will, preaching about good news, is, uh, hell is good news? Yes, it is. And here's why. The good news is, is that John is telling them they don't have to go there. That's the good news. Forgiveness doesn't make sense unless you're facing judgment. Salvation isn't good news unless we're headed for perdition, being lost. Being saved doesn't, it's not good news unless you know you're headed to being lost. (laughs) So it is good news. And preaching about hell, there is no gospel that leaves out the mention of sin and repentance. There is no gospel that leaves out the mention of hell and judgment. There is none, right? Just as there's no gospel that leaves out the mention of total forgiveness by faith alone. There's no gospel either way. You have to have both. While we've seen a lot of positive responses to John's preaching, not everyone felt that way. And just as John got specific about what the religious leaders, the soldiers, and the tax collectors needed to repent about, he got specific with everybody. If you asked him and said, John, what about me? What, you know, what's, a, what's a repentant life look like for me? He'd tell you. He'd say, quit being mean to your spouse. He, was, he would say, quit stealing from your boss. He would tell you. And there was one particular guy that did not like what John had to say. Look at verse 19. But, so this is now a screeching halt into the ministry of John, which is having an impact. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, John the Baptist, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now this is Herod Antipas. This is the one that was mentioned that was the Tetrarch over Galilee, which shows you just how mad at John he is because he doesn't have jurisdiction in Judea where John is ministering in the Jordan Valley area. He doesn't have jurisdiction there. He gets it somehow and he puts John in prison, which shows you how upset John's words made him. Now what did John critique? Well, the word reprove there, it means to state that someone has done something wrong. See, Herod had another brother named Herod. He had quite a few brothers named Herod. Um, It gets confusing looking at the Herod family because a lot of them are named Herod. The way you distinguish them is by their second name. So Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, he had a brother named Herod Philip. This guy wasn't Tetrarch of anything. There's another Herod Philip that makes it even more confusing, who we learned about was Tetrarch of the area uh, of Syria. He's not the guy we're talking about here. This Herod Philip, he lived in Rome. Herod had a brother named Philip who had married a woman named Herodias, the gal mentioned here, and they lived in Rome. But it was a political marriage. She always had a thing for Herod Antipas. When Herod Antipas took a a trip to Rome, they had a family get-together, and the two of them agreed, because Herod Antipas was married as well, the two of them agreed to divorce their spouses and to get together. Josephus, the historian during that time, explains... He says, Herodias was married to Herod, the son of Herod the Great, and they had a daughter named Salome, after whose birth Herodias, taking it into her head to flout the way of our fathers, married a different Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, her husband's brother, by the same father who was Tetrarch of Galilee. To do this, she parted from a living husband. The Bible is clear that that if your spouse is still alive, you need to stick with him. 
This was considered an unlawful marriage. God had set up that marriage was for life. And so John confronts Herod about this. He says, it is not biblical, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. A couple things to consider here is that Rome recognized the remarriage, but John didn't. He still calls her somebody else's wife. That's something to consider. That'll really blow your mind in our day, how we treat marriage. Today, we are told that all sorts of things are okay. We're told that all sorts of relationships are okay. All sorts of things can be a marriage. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Today, we are told that it's none of our business telling two people who love each other that it's wrong for them to be together or to get married. But John had no problem doing that. He had no problem looking at one of the most powerful people in that area and saying, what you're doing is sin. Your relationship isn't okay. It's bad. He had no problem with that. Herod professed love for Herodias, said he was crazy about her. She said the same thing about him. But John said the circumstances of their marriage were wrong. Therefore, their marriage, recognized by the state, was sin before God, no matter what the culture thought and no matter what the government thought. When we do premarital counseling, we explain to people, or we ask them to say, what makes two people married? And it's interesting. One of the things we talk about is what things are present in our modern-day marriage that really have nothing to do with what makes two people married. A lot of stuff. It doesn't mean they're bad, but there's a lot of things. Your marriage license doesn't make you married. I, I remember when me and Bev had our wedding and, and I forgot to sign the thing. And so my dad calls me as I'm on my honeymoon. And he says, don't do anything. You're not married yet. And I hung up. <laughs> I already said my vows. That doesn't make you married. They can say anything they want. God's the one who defines what marriage is. And Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So only he's the one that makes two people one. Like in my weddings, you may hear pastors say, and if you've done this, if you're a pastor, I'm not trying to be critical of you, but I hear pastors say, by the power vested in me, by the state of blah, 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 I now pronounce you husband and wife. I don't say that because I don't have that power. I say, by the power vested in me, by the word of God, and on the basis of your vows, I declare that God has made you husband and wife. I don't make anybody husband and wife. It doesn't matter what the government or the culture says. God's the one who defines it. And we have to say the same thing. Now, when you do, like John, prepare to be persecuted for saying those things. In some countries today, ministers are being arrested for stating what's marriage, what's not a marriage. But it's still true, and it still needs to be said. This obviously puts John out of the ministry. He's no longer able to preach because he's in jail. And he will die there. He'll eventually be beheaded for this, so he's never going to go back out. However, before he's arrested, something special does happen in his ministry. Look at verse 21. It says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. This is the first mention of Jesus praying in Luke. Luke will emphasize this aspect of Jesus's life, his prayer life, more than any other gospel writer. And I think that's to show us that if Jesus needed to pray a lot, then I think you and me need to pray a lot too, right? I know I need to pray a lot. Now, what was Jesus praying about at his baptism? We don't know. But I think we can maybe surmise a little bit based on what baptism represents. Baptism declares a changed life. Now, did Jesus need a changed life? No, he never sinned. He didn't need to declare a changed life. But as our example, because remember in Matthew, uh, it accounts this, and John says to him, you don't need to get baptized. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, suffer to be so now that the scriptures might be fulfilled because this has to be done this way. Jesus had to do a lot of things that he didn't personally need to do, but to be the perfect man, he had to do it. As God, he didn't need to, but to show us the way the perfect man's supposed to do things, he had to do it. 
here he is then as our example, humbling himself and showing us the way it needs to be done. So the way it needs to be done is someone seeking the Lord to help him live this new life, the Lord's help. So Jesus's prayers here, whatever they may be, they at least show me that I need to recognize I can't live this new life in my own strength. I need God's help. Hence, my need to pray. But there's something else that's important that we need to live this new life. Notice it says that as he's praying and being baptized, it says that the heaven was opened. Now, usually the heavens here refer to the sky. Sometimes, of course, it refers to the dwelling place of God. But the idea of being opened here doesn't just mean the clouds parted and it became pretty. The idea is that a literal terror in time and space occurred and something entered through that terror from heaven. Now, John the Baptist said he saw this happen in John 1. We don't know if anybody else saw it. My guess is they did. You may be saying, hold on a second, Pastor Will. The whole, the whole the sky opened like a terror in time and space? Yep, that's crazy. Well, we believe all sorts of crazy things here. And in fact, the Bible says it's going to happen again. Read Revelation 6. Because in Revelation 6, it says that when God is bringing judgment upon the world during the tribulation period, it says that the sky will roll back like a scroll, roll up like a scroll, and people will be able to view right into heaven and see where the judgment is coming from. They'll see the throne of God. And they'll say, hide us from the throne and him who sits on it and from the wrath of the Lamb. You might think it's crazy, but it's going to happen again. It happens here. And again, I don't know who saw it. But what comes out of this tear in time and space? Well, it says God's spirit in the form of a dove. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape, which means a physical form. So everyone at least saw this dove come out of the sky and light upon Jesus, rest upon Jesus. They did all see that. What's interesting is the Holy Spirit is descending upon him to empower him. This is an important encouragement to us because Jesus did not start his ministry until these two events occurred, both baptisms. Remember, John said, I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus can't baptize himself in the Holy Spirit, so... You know, the father is the one who gets involved in this process for him. But he didn't go into ministry until he had been water baptized and until he had been baptized with the Holy Spirit to empower him for ministry. So we talk about our need to pray, but not only do I need to pray to live this new life, I need supernatural help from God's Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Paul says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the desires of your flesh. Doesn't that sound good? It sounds good to me because I know what my flesh wants and it's not what God wants. The promise that I don't have to do that, that I can overcome that by the power help of God's spirit, I want that. It's important. We need that. Jesus did nothing in his own strength, even though as God, he could have. I don't have any strength. So if Jesus relied upon the power of God's spirit, I need to as well. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.